This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lisa Sanders, Director of Science Technology at the Special Operations Command. Ms. Sanders um, is the Director of Science Technology um, and Acquisition Technology and Logistics at the U.S. uh, Special Operations Command down in McDill Air Force Base, Florida. She's responsible for all pre-program of record research and development-funded activities. Ms. Sanders has over 35 years of civilian federal experience. And and Lisa, it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Leaders and Legend. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, as I uh, you know, thought about when I got the invitation, I certainly don't consider myself a legend, but I think we're all leaders in varying stages of our life. So I'm happy to talk about my experience. Well, let's start with, uh, can you describe your leadership style? Sure. Um, so I, I consider myself to be more of a circular or a 360 leader. Um, I, I try to understand all the perspectives of the people that are involved. Um, and uh, one of the things that happens is sometimes people that aren't considered your customers uh, in some situations, they do have insights and perspectives. And so I really try to make sure that I understand who, um, who's impacted by the situation and make sure that, that their needs are considered. But at the end of the day, I joke that I run a democratic dictatorship, which means I take inputs from a lot of people, but I do make the decision at the end of the day. So you mentioned you kind of alter your approach depending on the situation or audience. So is there any story that you can tell us about your leadership uh, and challenge and how you faced an obstacle and how you got through it? Sure. Um, So working in Special Operations Command, you can imagine, is a we have a lot of high energy people involved and really strong opinions about what's important. Um, And we have just an extremely diverse portfolio. Um, you know, we often say we do everything from submarines to satellites, body armor to to uh, to blood. Um, and so, when I first got into the S and T Science and Technology Directorate at Special Operations Command, um, I had to reach out and figure out who were our stakeholders, who were involved in in making the decisions, who were setting priorities, and uh, that was a journey. Um, we uh, really spent a lot of time pulsing the ecosystem to determine who had a say. And um, I don't dictate to anybody what their needs are. They're the ones that are the experts in their problem spaces. What I did then was brought together a forum where people could um, identify common needs, and that way we could address solutions that maybe didn't just fit one person's ask, but were applicable to the entire ecosystem. Um, and it just, it, it was a process. Um, there's not like any specific stories of, you know, horrible misunderstandings or anything like that, but just taking the time to, for the first time, um, that portfolio really had an opportunity to say, all right, if you're interested in, getting access to science and technology funding to support special operations requirements, this is where you start. Um, and, and 
we started doing that in late 2010, and we continue to use that process today. Now, certainly the Special Operations Command uh, is a male-dominated organization. Um, have you found that being a woman leader in these types of situations that you need to lead differently? And is there any story you can share? Um, this has been true of my whole career. I mean, I, I, I started my career in, engin in true engineering. I was in a mechanical engineering program doing manufacturing, and I started working for General Motors. Um, at that point in time, I was 17 years old because I did it as a cooperative education student. And in order to be working in the factory at that time, you had to have been working there before I was born. So it wasn't so much being a woman as being young that was kind of the, the, the situation at that stage in the game. Um, and then um, I had a lot, as I, as I moved to the government and um, moved from being an engineer to being a team leader, um, the first team that I ran was all men, all old enough to be my father. Um, and, you know, I had young children at the time, and so I can remember a specific business trip I'm on with my team, and we're out to dinner, and um, the server at the table comes around to take orders, and they assumed I was out with my dad and his friends, so they're carding me, you know, because I bought a beer, or I asked for a beer, and all the guys just thought this was hysterical. They're like, she's our boss, you know, and, and so um, one of the things I did learn, though, in that situation, just because of the unconscious biases that people have, is that I had to adapt my style, because as I said, I'm very uh, in, inclusive in my style, and I would typically, you know, kind of get the group together kind of in a, you know, what is, what is it that's happening? What I learned is that when I'm the youngest person in the room, I need to set the, set the tone by sitting at the head of the table, having the agenda, coordinating the activity. Then as time's gone on, I'm no longer the youngest person in the room. I, I can open that door to other people, you know, maybe, um, taking the lead if it's an area that they are they feel passionate about. So that's just been a shift over time. I haven't really seen that much about being a woman. It's more about experience or use or, you know, um, in the special operations community, a lot of credibility comes from your experience. And um, there's there's shorthands that, that just happen. You know, what training have you had? What qualifications do you have? As a career civilian, my expertise is in delivering the capability to them. And I focus on that expertise. And that's what um, provides the bona fides to, um, to lead the organization. You know, Lisa, you've worked on for many different types of leaders. Uh, can you define a great leader? And does any come to mind from your past? I think that leadership in general is really about helping people become more than they think they can be or helping a team become more than the sum of the individuals. Um, it's really about um, identifying what you want to deliver and finding a path to that. And um, I, uh, when, when, I, when I thought about this question, I actually cast my mind back to, I wrote a paper in my uh, in one of my master's programs um, about comparing and contrasting leadership styles because I've had some awesome leaders in my career. Um, and I compared and contrasted um, bosses that I had that actually went back to back. 
Um, they were both, at the time, they were both colonels, Air Force colonels running a program executive office. And uh, at the time, Colonel Jim Gertz, who eventually became the uh, head of all naval acquisition, uh, was the SOCOM acquisition executive before that in a several different roles. He was PEO, program executive officer, fixed wing. And he is a visionary leader. Anybody that knows Hondo Gertz knows that he is all about establishing these really big stretch objectives and motivating people through inspirational, um, you know, uh, follow me and come along with me kind of kind of a mindset. And, and it helped the team and helped the individuals become more than they could be. The immediate PEO fixed wing after then Colonel Gertz was then Colonel Duke Richardson. And he's just a very different leader. He leads through quiet excellence, through doing the day-to-day -day things in the, you know, in an excellent way, looking, looking at um, fulfilling each person and giving them the, to the tools and the skills. And so um, the characteristic that I took from Mr. Gertz was about asking the question and focusing on how do we make things happen rather than focusing on why we can't do something. From then um, Colonel, Colonel Richardson, who's now four-star General Richardson, it's about do everything you do with excellence. So, uh, you know, have you had any major obstacles or challenges that you encountered on a personal level that you had to overcome in order to become an effective leader? Yeah, thir more than 35 years as a government civilian, you know, life happens, right? Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned that early in my career, I kind of had a fairly fast trajectory and I got to a leadership position pretty early. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, it was typical young family balance issues. Hey, kids get sick and, you know, you have to do travel and this sort of thing. And that was a balance. But um, sometimes life gets really ugly. And, and uh, one of the things that I'm very um, passionate about is being transparent about personal challenges. Um, I personally went through what I consider, you know, a, a major crisis. Um, I, I refer to that as the time when my life fell apart. Um, my the the father of my children that I was married to it was a government civilian at the same time. He uh, he went through a severe mental illness and it became an unsafe situation. I personally had to go and file a restraining order. Um, I had to find a way to move myself and my children to a totally different area. And that kind of personal challenge could be happening to each and every one of the people that you're working with at any given time. And I think that, um, that one of the, the important lessons that came out of that is that um, you, you need to be willing to seek help. Um, when, when that happened, my organization stepped forward. You know, they leaned into how can I help you? Where can we, and that's how I ended up moving to Tampa. At the time, I worked for Naval Aviation or Naval Air Systems Command in Patuxent River, Maryland. It was a very small community. There was no way to have the physical safety that I needed if I was in that same area. So they allowed me to move my children to Florida and start over again. And I can't, the people that just came out of the woodwork to come and pack up my house and mow the lawn until I could get the house sold and, you know, and, and um, bring meals to me and ship stuff to me. The, as a leader, um, I think that it is so important for us to give our employees the space to address the challenges that happen in life. And, and what it creates is a, a philosophy that I say that, that means not now doesn't mean not ever. 
as all that was happening, I chose to turn down a promotion um, because I just couldn't take that additional role on. And my leadership understood that. And at the time, I, you know, I didn't see a path for me to move forward. Things moved forward. I was able to come back to a, a place where I was competitive for future promotions. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's a little more transparency than maybe some people will share. But, um, I, you know, I, I think that it's important to realize that people that are in po positions of leadership haven't always had an easy path. Yeah, that's a, an incredible story uh, to share with people, especially uh, layered on top of the fact that in special operations and and in high-level DOD positions like that, there's clearances involved. And I know that a lot yeah. of people don't want to share. Um, they're having challenges because of their clearances. So, um, how did you know? Uh, you know, ha as a leader, how have you been able to help share that story so that you know people get the help they need? Because you know everybody has sometimes something that's not going right in their life. Yeah. Um, the, the situation with security clearances can get very, can, can get challenging. Um, what it really comes down to is that you, you have a right to your personal privacy. Not everybody has to know everything about your business. All right. But you do need to make sure that the people that um, are making those decisions do know. So, as all of this was happening, I mean, I was immediately transparent with my leadership. I immediately went to security. And, and security clearances are driven by where you have the potentially to be adversely influenced. Other people's behavior is not within your control, all right? Um, and so, so even, even if you make a mistake, because life is messy, and sometimes people do things that they shouldn't do because life is messy, but you need to be transparent about it and develop a pathway to say, where is the risk here? There's always more risk in hiding things than there is in being transparent about things when it comes to security um, and, and finding, a, finding a path to solutions. As leaders, we also then need to make sure that we don't penalize our employees for situations where they shouldn't be penalized. Um, you know, finding, you know, again, the example that I, that I used, you know, that happened to me, um, I mean, it, it, we found a way to yes, um, because my job was in Patuxent River, Maryland, but we found a way for me to be able to do my job at another facility, which happened to be McDill. I was working on the CV-22 program at the time, which was a special operations command program and headquartered out of McDill. So I just moved my location to that and and found a way to make it work. Very wise advice. I'm speaking with Lisa Sanders, Director of Science Technology at Special Operations Command. After the break, we'll discuss the effects on leadership on culture. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lisa Saunders, Director of Science Technology at Special Operations Command. Lisa, what is the relationship between leadership and culture, and, and how does leadership affect culture? I actually have a quote on my whiteboard in my office that says, culture helps people navigate ambiguity. And my organization is full of ambiguity. The world in general is full of ambiguity right now. Um, so culture gives people a framework to hang on to. I recently did a survey of my team, 
and we we looked for them to provide you know feedback on things that they they felt were working, things that weren't working. But one of the undercore underpinning things that I was looking for is what did the enterprise feel about our culture? And it was an extremely strong culture. It was a very positive response that the team felt respected. They felt that they could bring issues and be heard, that they felt that they could bring divergent perspectives uh, into the into the group and have them being considered um, and, and that everybody has value. That is a core tenant that I that I really emphasize is that people that work for me, people that work anywhere in our enterprise, they're all adults. They want to contribute and they're worthy of respect. And when challenges arise, which they do, we have to overcome those concerns by communicating and by listening. That doesn't mean that everybody gets exactly what they want, but everyone is heard. You know, I, I have a quote that I have up on my wall in the office. It's culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's the legendary quote uh, from um, Peter Drucker. And, and I, I, I think it, it takes that a few steps further, what you were just sharing. I, I don't think that the strategy is unimportant, but rather powerful and empowering culture, you know, beyond just respect, but actually hiring people to do the jobs that, you know, they're hired for is a sure route to organizational success. Uh, do you practice that? And, and do you agree with that thought? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and it can be challenging in an environment like ours where our priorities do sometimes change. And um, they are so diverse that it can be hard to assess and compare, is this priority more important than another priority? And so the underlying culture that says that there's no right answer um, and that we really are weighing and balancing things is what allows us to achieve the strategy, which is about delivering revolutionary disruptive capability that supports the special operations warfighter fighters needs in order to achieve our overall objective of um, providing integrated deterrence and support of the nation's mission that they that they give special operations. So how, what does that mean practically? Because that's a lot of words and it, it can be really, really hard to go from overarching themes, whether that's culture or strategy, into the actual point of action on, you know, at at the time. Okay. I've got this I've got this program and it needs more money than we planned or the this is delayed or I need more people. How do I make the decision where that comes from? Because nobody has extra sitting around, right? Um, I, we we utilize the concept of opportunity cost, which is an economic term, um, which really says that that um, you need to consider what you are not doing and weigh the value of what you're not doing in order to do the thing that you want to do and determine which one is more or less valuable. So when my team is faced with challenges that say, you know, I either whether it's money or whether it's time or, you know, uh, whatever the, the question is, we really look at it from, okay, what do I gain by doing this? What do I gain by doing that? Choice A, choice B. Are there other people that perhaps can support one of these things? So can we, re can we reach the objective other ways? And, and that's a part of the, the balancing act of a culture that looks at things open-ended, 
towards how do we achieve things, that comes back to that leadership approach that I mentioned. Rather than saying, nope, we can't do this because I'm committed to do you know, task B, and so task A, I just don't have room to do task A. Instead, we step back and say, is that, is that worth, you know, is task B worth doing more than task A, or are there other ways that we can achieve one or the other of those tasks? Now, you have a, a very, you know, interesting and difficult job these days, driving science and technology, which means driving innovation, which, you know, the technology, the clock speed of technology is just speeding ahead with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, you know, and you had some very important roles in the intelligence uh, community and Department of Defense. Can you share with us what it's like being an executive um, right now in the community, trying to drive that innovation into maybe more traditional environments like in, in a military culture? Well, one of the one of the things is just defining what we mean by innovation, because it can become buzzword bingo, and and some you know people can can get caught up in um, the flash without the results. So there's I spend a fair amount of time both within the special operations ecosystem because we have lots of people with lots of opinions about that. We have great bottom up innovators that are working at the tactical edge where they're actually looking to solve a problem today. We have strategic level guidance where General Fenton, our commander, is really leaning forward on providing you know, the Defense Department an overwhelming difference to achieve those objectives of integrated deterrence. And, and we can't do it by doing the same thing that we've always done. Okay, so there's, there's the Special Operations Command side of it, which is trying to stay aligned with the commander's vision while still you know, addressing the bottom up, hey, I need this problem solved today. So there's time balancing that. And then at the DOD and federal government level, um, it, it is where are there impediments in the system that are creating a problem to systemically get at this? Things like, um, you know, the, the way that the federal government authorizes programs of record and funding driven by a cycle that doesn't keep up with the pace of technology. So, you know, there, there are a number of groups across all the services, OSD-led, you have uh, entities like the Defense Innovation Unit that are really focusing at what is the overall policy implications that, that need to be adjusted? Are there changes in the law that are needed? Is it really just changing the culture? And how do you incentivize and motivate people to do that? So what's my role in that? It's finding the places that Special Operations Command can um, be an early adapter try out things, potentially take things on that maybe have a risk that aligns with Special Operations Command's objectives, and we can then determine, is that risk something that should be adopted by the broader department, or um, can we determine the impact of that risk faster so that we're not spending a lot of time as a department assessing something that, um, that, that maybe isn't something that can be adapted by the Department of Defense or at large. So um, finding that balance, being a part of those working groups, and then um, working to identify where we have the authority, but we just haven't started doing things. So doing th breaking out experiments and opportunities, pilots to try uh, different approaches. 
to, to bring innovation to the forefront and overcome some of the barriers that we have. What do you believe is some of the most disruptive uh, and productive technologies uh, that can change or help the mission um, right now? Yeah, um, I, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a scientist. I have an engineering degree, but I consider myself a facilitator or a program manager. So I'm not going to give you a scientific driven, this, this technology is going to change the world. Because where I actually think is happening is it's the intersection of these technologies is what's really creating the disruptive change. Um, and a few years ago, actually, when I was meeting with a group of non-traditional, like futurists and that sort of thing, I asked that question of them. Hey, what's the technology that we should be keeping an eye on, et cetera? And uh, one of the participants in there told me, and this is in like 2013-ish time frame, he said, I believe the intersection of cheap sensors, cameras, along with cheap available computing and um, the fusion of, um, of what he, the gyros that are in, basically all three of those things were developed by the cell phone industry. So in your phone, the processing that you have in your phone, the cameras and sensors that you have in your phone, and the ability to know where you are in your phone has created this fusion of intersections of capabilities that has totally changed the way that we understand our world. And, but it's not just the camera itself that drives it. It's the fact that all of these things are available and they're cheap and things that used to cost a billion dollars and take a satellite of which we could only have you know, 20 of, now there are millions of them spread across the world. And so how do we capture that? And oh, by the way, they're changing at the speed of software. It doesn't take 20 years to get that new capability now. This is in the next software drop. So I think that being able to harness those types of capabilities that are driven and changing rapidly is where we're really going to see disruptive change. Um, you know, it, 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 the, the challenge comes in how do we harness that to field it in support of military objectives. I'm speaking with Lisa Sanders, Director of Science Technology at Special Operations Command. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Lisa Saunders, Director of Science Technology at Special Operations Command at MacDill Air Force Base. You know, Lisa, getting organizations to adopt change is always one of the biggest leadership challenges. And I'm, I'm sure that when you were at, you're at the Special Operations Command, it, that's not unique. So tell me about your approach uh, leading in an organization to adopt a major change. Yeah, the, I learned a really hard lesson um, in leadership when I became, a, a, at the time I was the Deputy Director of Science and Technology here at Special Operations Command. And I came into the S&T Enterprise from a whole career doing production and sustainment. And, and, and I joked that I couldn't even spell science and technology or S&T. And so, um, but I came in with a mindset of, uh, you know, really breaking down barriers, figuring out what we needed to work on. And I came into an environment with fairly typical engineers and engineers like process and they like to know what they're gonna do and do it and report on it 
and then do the next iteration. And so here I come in, you know, driving the, well, here's these things that I'm bringing in from our user community, and, and why aren't we working on this? So let's re, this is a priority now. And I was, I, there was a while there where we were doing reorganizations every time that somebody had a new need. And I learned that you have to adapt and, and create a framework for people to hang on to. So the, my team knows that one of my mottos is a, that the science and technology director's motto is Semper Gumby, which means always flexible, right? Like the little, little green plastic toy. Um, but they can be flexible when they have some consistency that's underpinning that. So, um, so being able to come back to a foundation allows you to respond to the things that do change because you don't change everything. You know, um, Helping people understand what's driving the change. Back to, to one of my earlier uh, uh, philosophies and cultures, which is that everyone wants to do good things. Um, if they don't understand why the thing that they were doing is less important, then they're going to hang, they, they're going to revert to what they felt was valuable and, and change is hard because sometimes the things that we've done for a long time are no longer what we need to focus on. And so giving them the understanding, this is how this aligns to the overall objective. Um, sometimes the problem is that they don't, they don't know how to get the resources they need for something new. They've always worked on, for instance, optics and, you know, systems like that. And now that, that the world has changed and we're, we're, we're looking at different kinds of sensors that don't use light, they know how to do optics. They don't know how to go out and, and gain information from publicly available information in order to have the same kind of thing. So getting, understanding what tools that they need to help with that change and providing those is a part of getting your organization move forward. And then coming back throughout the process and touching base. Don't assume that everybody is moving at the same change of pace. Some people are going to be your pathfinders. They're going to love that change. They're going to be leading me, and I'm going to have to hold them back. But trying to figure out those people that are not getting with the program, really understanding what's their challenge, and, and then bringing everybody to benchmarks as we move through the change is something that I've found really helpful in bringing an entire organization into um, you know, a different focus, a different strategy. So, you know, right now it, it's a challenging time, uh, especially for organizations like Special Operations Command and with all the chaos happening in the world, you know, the attack in Israel, Ukraine, you know, the challenges with China. It, it's, let's face it, it's, it's coming from all directions. This is impacting everybody across the world. Um, people are looking for clarity of communication and to find courage um, from leadership to know that, uh, you know, what's our path? Things will be okay. What does leadership from your perspective um, uh, look like in crisis? And, and what qualities do you think are really needed during stressful times like we are experiencing today? Um, I, I definitely hearken back to the, the, my, my core values, which are um, in times of chaos, it is most important that you come back to the touch point of trust and respect um, because it, it, it's very unsettling in this kind of a time and having a, a, a bedrock to be able to hang on to is really important and, and communication is how you get to that. 
But again, you, that, that's great from a culture perspective. You need practical actions that you can apply to that. And um, one of the tools that I have my team utilize, I, I talk about cer- several tools. Every time somebody comes into my organization, we do a one-hour sit-down, and I go through some of those cultural foundations, and I, I describe some of the tools. And I talked about the opportunity cost tool a minute ago. Another tool that I use is I point out that in every element of life, whether it's stable or chaotic, there, there's stuff to be done, and they fall into three categories. There's stuff that just has to be done. You know, in your family life, somebody has to take out the trash, right? There's stuff that people like to do, that you specifically like to do, for instance. You know, some people um, really enjoy solving problems, for instance. And then there's things that you're good at. And in a perfect world, those things line up. The things that need to be done are things that you have the skills to do, and they're things that, that, that you like to do. But particularly in that time of of chaos and change, sometimes if you just recognize, hey, this thing that needs to be done, I know it's not what you like to do, but you're able to do it, and and we're going to have to get, you know, eat our vegetables. We're going to have to take out the trash. It needs to be done. But sometimes, you know, I may use that time of change or chaos to help somebody gain skills in an area that they're interested in, but they haven't had the opportunity to do. So in that midst of chaos, using the foundation of that trust and respect, we communicate to determine, okay, what is the stable stuff that you're going to do? And what are the places that you're going to reach out and try something new? And sometimes that means there's things that we stop doing because they're just not able to be fit into, you know, into uh, the space because, the world's changed, and this problem is now the most important, and so now we're going to have to stop doing something else. And by communicating that across the team, and it's not just a leader down, it's it's across the team as well. Um, one of the things that's unique about our organization is that we are not a stovepiped organization. People are assigned into teams, but there is a lot of cross-team communication, and um, that helps bring lessons learned across the team, and it also helps us find opportunities where there's common actions we can take that maybe weren't obvious because the the commodity that they're working on might be different. You're a senior leader in uh, the Department of Defense. Um, and tell us more about your role and what drew you to this mission um, at SOCOM. Um, well, I had already mentioned that I came to SOCOM supporting the CB-22. So I, I, I started my career doing avionics then got into aircraft platforms, came to support Special Operations Command when I was assigned to uh, to CV-22. So that's the first time I really had any exposure to Special Operations Command. And it is just, um, it, it's a magnetic kind of an uh, enterprise. Many people that come and work with Special Operations Command really don't want to leave because we have the best warfighters, the best customer on the planet. Um, what we do matters. Um, it. It, it, but as I said, I started, you know, I was doing aircraft and I was delivering capability. I then went on to do C-130s, which is, you know, cargo platforms, but they're penetrators and they're, you know, uh, tactical gunships, et cetera. And so when I had the opportunity to come to science and technology, I actually, I, I questioned myself because uh, one of the things I think is really important is to know what success means to you. And I measured my success by capability delivered. And, uh, I, when, I, when I looked at science and technology, I'm like, how am I going to get that fulfillment 
of capability delivered. It's science and technology. And um, I was so grateful. My boss at the time reminded me that I was a single mom with two kids getting ready to go to college, and it was a big promotion, and I should take it. Um, but, uh, but when I got into the job, I realized that my point of view changed. M my fulfillment now comes not only in delivering actual technology and capability, that's super important, but my fulfillment comes in growing people so that they have the, the skills to achieve their objectives as well. And that kind of motivation, you, you can't buy that motivation. It's not a money thing. It's, it's the joy that I see when the people that work for me compete and get promoted. Um, it's the joy that I see when I have customers come in and talk about the things that they're using on the battlefield that started, you know, in, in our technology development areas. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lisa Sanders, Director of Science and Technology at Special Operations Command. Next, we'll find out what Lisa's advice is to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Lisa Saunders, Director of Science and Technology at the Special Operations Command. Now, Lisa, you have so much going on in your life. You're you were a single mom. You you had some pretty big personal challenges. You had an incredible career uh, as an executive mom and wife. How do you how do you find that balance? Uh, you know, how do you do it all? Um. Well, I don't do it all, first of all. Um, there, there, there was definitely a, a trope or a meme when I was growing up that you had to do it all, right? There was even a commercial about it. I made choices. Um, you really have to decide what's important and you focus on what's important. I used to say, particularly when my kids were younger, that uh, and people would ask me for things and they'd, I'd say, I can provide anything you want as long as I can buy it because my time is worth more than my money. Um, and I also used to tell people, we eat out a lot and you don't see my house. Um, so, you know, you make those decisions on what matters. And for me, particularly when my kids were young, it was spending time with my kids. So I did lead scouts and I taught martial arts and, you know, and, and I did those things with my kids and traded that off. As you get a little older, I spend my time on what influences others. Um, you know, I don't need to, you know, have the, the next big, you know, fancy car or boat or, you know, things. I spend my time on experiences. Um, so I think what I would encourage people who hear this is to really decide what do you want to optimize and don't feel guilty for making those trades. Be honest about that. Hey, you know, and, and the answer may be somebody may say, I think it's really important that you serve in this role. And you can say no. No is a complete sentence. As long as you are comfortable that the thing, you know, because otherwise you're going to say yes to something that means something more important doesn't get done. Lisa, you've had, um, can you describe your career path? And, and if somebody wanted to follow in your path, uh, you know, become a, a director of science and technology to a major command like SOCOM. What, what advice would you have? I, I laugh that I'm on God's plan Z for my life because you could not create, you, you could not make up a career like mine because it's been very different. I literally answered an ad in the newspaper. I was working for General Motors as a manufacturing engineer and answered an ad in the newspaper to go to work for the Navy. Had no idea the Navy even had civilian employees at that point in time. 
um, and then uh, moved back and forth between engineering and program management. I went through a base closure in the mid-90s, uh, moved to a, a facility uh, in, in Maryland that I had never heard of before uh, that did a lot of aircraft work. I, I've already mentioned how I came to Special Operations Command. Uh, just uh, it, it fell through there. The, the common theme I would say is look for opportunities to contribute that align with what's important to you. Do your best in everything that you that you are asked to do, and um, and and seek those pathways to learn, to continually learn. Um, in the looking in the rearview mirror of my path, my, my career, I didn't have mentors. I didn't have a career trajectory. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about mentoring is because I want to give people the opportunity to think through what they want and what matters to them and when the right times are. But looking back. The fact that I moved back and forth between engineering and program management gave me a real broad, diverse perspective that really focused on solving problems and finding ways to achieve an outcome that moved, you know, uh, moved whatever organization I was in forward. Um, and so from a how you would become somebody in my position, um, there's a technical path that you could do. There's a lot of people that, that are my peers that are very strong technically. Um, and uh, and that's, that's a perfectly viable path. Um, that's just not the path I took. So let's talk about mentoring for a second. Um, I love the fact that you, you give back and mentor. So tell me, how, how do you do that? How, how, how should somebody find a mentor or, or, um, or uh, how, how do you help mentors? Um, well, first of all, you need to decide what you want from a mentor. Are you looking for somebody to give you really strong, practical guidance to a specific outcome? Um, then, then it really matters that that person has the technical knowledge and experience. For instance, if you want to become the chief engineer in a program office, you wouldn't go ask a finance person to mentor you towards that, right? Because they don't know what credentials are required. They don't understand how to weigh the different potential opportunities that come in there. doesn't mean now, but if what you're looking for is somebody to help you with um, communication skills or work-life balance, then maybe it doesn't matter what job they have. You want somebody that resonates with you and that you trust and you're, you're willing to have those conversations with. So um, I don't think that there's a singular one mentor for any one person. I think that you want to determine... Do I want somebody that's going to carry me through a career? Then it really matters that I have a match and that I align with their values and they have enough knowledge of my objective that they can provide that. But if I want somebody for a season or for a specific reason, it's not as important that, that everything else line up because it's not a long-term thing. Um, I have six people that I mentor that are at different levels. I don't mentor anybody in my chain of command. I do mentor a few people that used to work for me. Some of them are in industry. Some of them work in different departments of the, of, of the military. Um, there's only a couple of them that are here at SOCOM. Um, and I learn from them too. So part of what I choose from a mentee is I'm looking for somebody that has experiences, that has perspectives that I don't have. And then um, one of the things I always tell people, uh, and, and, and so that's for regular and during mentorship. I will do a one-off session. So far, I haven't turned anybody down that's asked for a one-off session um, uh, just for an hour or two to kind of talk through some things with them. But one of the things I always tell people is there's no wrong answers because it's your life. 
And if somebody gives you a prescriptive, you must do X, Y, and Z, then I would think twice about them as a mentor. We've been talking about your career and the success, which by the way, has truly been inspirational. But do you have any kind of pearls of wisdom you would have for the next generation in general? I mean, what do you tell your kids when they're looking at schools or, or possible careers? Yeah, I, I'm, uh, we, we, we've talked about my kids a lot. They're all adults now. They're 31 and 30. I have two grandchildren. So, uh, so they, they've, you know, and they, they, haven't chosen, they haven't chosen the path that I would have chosen for them. And that's okay because it's their life, right? Um, but, but in general, I always encourage people to come back to what matters to you. Um, one of the things that I definitely see with the, with the um, generation that's just early in their career right now is they have a very different framework of what matters to them. Um, it, uh, they're, they're much more willing to trade work, professional success for personal success, um, whereas my generation, a lot of things were driven by professional success first, and you, you traded your work or your personal success from that. Um, the other thing that I would say is that um, it's, it used to be that career development was considered a pyramid or a very linear path. Um, that's something that in the Air Force, we've done a major revamp. We've gone from a pyramidal structure to something that looks a little more like chutes and ladders because the workforce of today is much more likely to shift sideways than they are to go up. And so when I do talk to people that are in, in you know, earlier mid stages of their career, I do ask them to consider, is, is there something that's very different that you'd be interested in and how might that help you uh, overall achieve what you consider success? And again, success is not a job title. Success is, you know, what, what do I measure as my contribution? You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Lisa Saunders. And Lisa, I just want to thank you for your years of public service and your dedication to this nation. Um, I'd also want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really valuable advice. You're so welcome. I really appreciated the chance to talk with you and uh, uh, hope, that, hope that anybody, somebody can get something worthwhile out of this. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Thank you.